The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 2 The Umayyad Caliphate Let us summarise the rise of Islam as described in the previous episode. A man called Muhammad received a message from God via a vision of the Archangel Gabriel early in the 7th century while he was living in Mecca, his traditional home city. The message were the words of the Quran and what has become the central religious texts of Islam which although is an Abrahamic religion, as is Judaism and Christianity, states that Jews and Christians have misinterpreted the messages of God and preaches a different form of religious worship. So this is the birth of the recognition of Islam as a distinct religion. Muhammad would be encouraged by the Archangel Gabriel to spread the word of Allah, with Allah being the Arabic word for God. Originally, the polytheistic Meccans violently rejected Muhammad's movement and forced him to flee to the rival city of Medina, where Muhammad's Islamic movement gained more followers due to the comparatively tolerant nature of the people of Medina. Muhammad would be able to rally enough support from the people of Medina that he would be able to return to Mecca with an army to avenge the aggressors who drove him out. When Muhammad defeated the Meccans, the Arabic world would have to accept the Muslim movement as a serious political movement on an international scale. What happened next is very significant to the evolution of Islam and the results of which can be recognised in today's world. After Muhammad died, his father-in-law, Abu Bakr, was made the first caliph or successor to Muhammad as the leader of the Muslim movement. Not all Muslims were supportive of Abu Bakr and a great number still believe to this day that his son-in-law, Ali, was the man that Muhammad actually wanted to be his own successor. Today's Sunni Muslims believe that Abu Bakr was the rightful and rightly guided successor, or the Rashidun Caliph. Shia Muslims believe that Ali should have been the rightful successor, and this is where the biggest and well-known 
Islamic schism stems from. Under Abu Bakr's rule, many Arabic rebels to the Islamic movement were put down until eventually the Arabian Peninsula was predominantly under Muslim rule. Military generals such as Khalid would move successfully northwards, challenging the borderlands of both the great Byzantine and Sasanian empires, who had both been weakened following hard years of war against each other. Abu Bakr was succeeded by another of Muhammad's fathers-in-law, called Umar. Shias do not accept Umar as the rightful successor to Muhammad, with Ali still being favoured as rightful in their eyes. Most accounts accept that Ali was supportive of the central authority of the Islamic Caliphate, although Shias say that this was originally under duress. Umar would successfully conquer the city of Jerusalem, but the Islamic rule of this city was religiously tolerant towards the other Abrahamic religions, and this attitude was never the case under the Romans and their descendants, the Byzantines. The Christian Church of the Holy Sepulchre was allowed to remain and Jews were allowed back in the city despite the fact that they had been persecuted in Mecca after Muhammad's Hajj from Medina to Mecca in 630. Umar would expand the borders of the Rashidun Caliphate into the Sasanian lands of Mesopotamia and also the Egyptian lands of the Byzantines. The Caliphate was a considerable size and Umar made the political reforms necessary that were needed to govern such a vast territory. After Umar's assassination in 644, the rule of the Caliphate would be disputed. Two prime candidates would emerge from a field of candidates, and one of the two was a man called Ali, who today's Shia Muslims regard as the rightful successor to Muhammad. However, it was another man called Uthman who would be elected to rule instead. Uthman was able to continue the caliphate's expansion, crushing the hearts of the Sasanian Empire and taking their lands, and expanding Muslim territory across the whole of North Africa. Despite the political reforms of Umar before him, Uthman was unable to manage this vast territory. He ceded too much authority to the local governors. When Uthman was assassinated, it was finally Ali's turn to become the caliph, and the caliph that Shia Muslims believe should have been the rightful successor to Muhammad all along. Ali inherited a fragmented empire. Syria and Egypt opposed Ali, as he had not done enough to find and bring Uthman's assassins to justice, and civil war broke out within the Rashidun Caliphate. This war is called the First Fitna. The Muslim governor of Syria was a man called Muawiyah. Muawiyah was the son of Abu Sufyan, 
a member of the Quraysh tribe who opposed Muhammad initially before converting to Islam. Muawiyah followed his father into this Islamic conversion and became involved in military affairs, accompanying the Caliph Umar during his conquest of Jerusalem. After this time, Muawiyah was entrusted with greater command, initially with Damascus, before later being granted Jordan, Palestine and Homs Jazeera. This area can be collectively referred to as Syria. Muawiyah did not have desires of opposing Ali's position of caliph initially, but he did demand vengeance on those responsible for the murder of the third Rashidun caliph, Uthman. There was also a very definite ingrained rivalry between the people living in the lands of Syria and Mesopotamia, and they saw that if Muawiyah gained any political edge over Ali, then the balance of wealth and power could switch from Mesopotamia, Ali's favoured base, to Syria under Muawiyah's direction. It became clear to Ali that Muawiyah's reluctance to accept Ali as a reliable caliph was dangerous and Ali would make moves westwards in order to either bring Muawiyah to heel or remove him as governor. The result was the Battle of Sifin in 657 and it seems that Ali would have the upper hand in the exchanges but Ali seemed reluctant to finish off the job and it's not completely clear why. It may be that some of his army did not want to advance on Muawiyah after he sued for peace. It is possible that Ali feared losing the loyalty of the vast territories of Syria altogether and voluntary arbitration was opted for instead. However, there were still quite obviously members of Ali's army that believed Muawiyah's opposition to Ali was an act of rebellion against Islam and were extremely disappointed that Ali chose arbitration as a conclusion which was against the word of the Quran that stated that rebels should be battled into submission before reconciliation. Such was the religious emotion of these members of Ali's army that they decided to stand alone. This was a dramatic move because they would feel so strongly that they would denounce Ali as the legitimate caliph on the grounds that he was an infidel. These defectors are referred to in history as the Harajites, which essentially comes from the Arabic word to leave. Even though they were the ones who seceded from the Rashidun Caliphate, the Kharijites believed that they were the only ones to remain loyal to the words of the Quran and therefore the only true and legitimate Muslims. Ali would have to turn his attention to dealing with the Kharijites who would naturally declare war on him. Their fundamental attitude led to their systematic murder of anyone who disagreed with their religious position. When Ali heard of these murders, he demanded that the murderers be turned over to him, but the Kharijites stood united with the murderers. 
an inevitable battle between Ali's forces and the Kharijites took place in 658 at the Battle of Nahrawan, and Ali would comprehensively defeat the Kharijites, marginalising them in Rashidun society. It would be just three years later that a member of the Kharijites would assassinate Ali while he was praying at the Great Mosque of Kufa in Rashidun-controlled Iraq. The Rashidun Caliphate was well and truly fragmented. Although the Harijites had scored this moral victory by killing the Caliph Ali, their influence remained limited since they were defeated by Ali at the Battle of Nahrawan. Before Ali's death, Muawiyah had made considerable political moves against him. The followers of Ali believed that the Caliphate was no longer practising Islam correctly and suggested that the coordination of Islam be restricted to the closest members of the Prophet Muhammad's family, such as Ali. These followers would be the original Shia Muslims who proclaimed that Ali would have always been the rightful heir to Muhammad. Muawiyah represented the opposition to Ali and those who were loyal to Muawiyah believed Ali to be an ineffective and detrimental ruler. When Muawiyah proclaimed himself as the Caliph in 660, still during the reign of Ali, he would claim to truly represent the people and therefore these people, his followers, would therefore become known as the Sunni Muslims. After Ali's death, the Shia would back Ali's son Hassan to take control of the caliphate. Hassan would be known to history as the second Shia imam, but his reign as the fifth Rashidun caliph was short-lived as Muawiyah and his army of Sunni followers would prove to be too powerful for Hassan to resist. And so Hassan gracefully abdicated stating that it was in the interest of the people that he peacefully make way for Muawiyah. Muawiyah was a descendant of the Quraysh tribe members of Mecca, which was the same family that Muhammad was born into. His great-grandfather was a member of the tribe and his name was Umayyah ibn Abd Shams, considered to be the progenitor of the next line of caliphs, who would be collectively known as the Umayyad caliphs. And so with Muawiyah's accession to the ruler of the caliphate, so would begin the era of the Umayyad caliphate. Umayyad Caliphate So we leave the stories of Muhammad and the Rashidun Caliphate behind and move forward with the story of the Muslim Arabs and their development as an empire of the evolving medieval world. Muawiyah would move the centre of Muslim power to Damascus, a much more fertile area of the world and much closer to the international political world than the distant desert lands of Arabia. Arab culture would prevail throughout the caliphate and dominate the Roman and Persian cultures that it replaced in and around the lands traditionally referred to in Neolithic history as the Fertile Crescent. 
We have also explored the schism between Sunnis and Shias that is based around which branch of the Quraysh family you chose to support during the 7th century. If it was the line descended from Muhammad's own grandfather, Abd al-Mutalib, then you would be Shia. And if it was the line descended from Umayyah ibn Abd Shams, then you would be Sunni. When the Umayyad Caliph Muawiyah died in 680, his son Yazid would become the new Caliph. The Shia would then encourage the younger brother of Hassan, the man who had abdicated almost 20 years earlier, to challenge Yazid and take back the Caliphate into Shia hands. His name was Hussein. Hussein would travel from Arabia to the power base of the Shia in Iraq and was met by an army dispatched by Yazid with the result being the Battle of Karbala. Hussein's army was not powerful enough to win the battle and as a result Hussein and members of his family were killed leaving the Shia remorseful about not rising to support Hussein enough. This event has resonated with the Shia, and now they consider the final resting place of the slain Hussein to be one of the holiest places on earth, with Hussein being honoured as a Shia martyr. The Rashidun Caliphate, and in turn the Umayyad Caliphate, had continually been battling with the Byzantines in North Africa. The Byzantines would need to reclaim Egypt from the Arabs. But the Arab army was extremely well resourced, and caused more and more problems for the Byzantines. The Arabs would push the Byzantines westwards, and take control of Cyrenica, enabling them to approach the area surrounding the city of Carthage. Originally, it would be the Rashidun army that would defeat the Byzantines at the Battle of Sufetila in 647 and subjugate the area around Carthage. The events of the first Fitna then caused the Arabs to abandon their North African interests before the Umayyads launched a great campaign on North African lands again later in the century. This time the Arabs reached the far-off lands of Mauritania, Tingitana, which is the Roman province in the modern country of Morocco that borders the Strait of Gibraltar. Once again, civil war prevented consolidation when Yazid had to defend his throne against Hussein during the Second Fitna, which we mentioned a short while ago. During the periods where the Arabs were distracted from Africa, the Byzantines would simply continue to land at the very well-established harbour at Roman Carthage and reclaim their territory. So when the Arabs came back again in 698, they destroyed the city and the harbour and took away the Byzantine option to use Carthage as a landing point. The Arab territories of the modern countries of Libya, Tunisia and eastern Algeria would be referred to as Ifrigia, after the Roman name for this area, Africa, which in turn would be the basis of the name of the entire continent today. By the year 709, the Arabs had taken control of the rest of the Maghreb, 
meaning that they were now in control of the whole of North Africa. This time, there were no distractions and the Arabs alongside the indigenous Berbers of North Africa would look across the Strait of Gibraltar to the Iberian Peninsula, once the Roman territory of Hispania and the modern-day country of Spain. At this period, it was the territory of the Visigoths, who had taken control of these lands during the collapse of the Western Roman Empire two to three centuries previous. The ruler of these Visigothic lands was a man called Roderick and he was preparing an army for the defence of his territory against the growing power of the Arabs on the opposite side of the water who had not been shy about raiding the Hispanian coast. The governor or military leader assigned to this area of the Arabs was a man called Tariq ibn Ziyad. Tariq would need to subdue the strategically important North African coastal harbour city of Ceuta, led by Count Julian, in order to access a small slither of land jutting out from Hispania, which Tariq could land at and use as his power base. This small peninsula is centred by a mountain, which would be an ideal vantage point from which to conduct a military campaign. The Arabic word for a mountain is Jabal, and this mountain would become known as Tariq's Mountain, or in Arabic, Jabal Tariq, which evolved into the modern word Gibraltar. So, of course, the mountain is the Rock of Gibraltar. The fateful battle between Tariq and Roderick would take place in 711 at the Battle of Guadalete, where Roderick was defeated and killed, and this enabled the Arabs to organise a conquest of the lands of the Iberian Peninsula. Further forces landed the following year striking terror into the people of Visigothic Hispania, who would refer to them as the Saracens, a word that has been used by Europeans in the past to refer to Arabs. The concept of a Saracen would stem from this aggressive intent, with many future Muslim armies being referred to by Europeans as Saracens, whether they be Arabs or not. In under a decade, these Saracens would overpower the Iberian Peninsula, taking control of it and adding it to the territory of the Umayyad Caliphate. The Arabs would even successfully cross the Pyrenees into the areas referred to as Septimania, which represents the Mediterranean coastal lands of southern France. They would take control of this territory, but were prevented from further expansion upon hitting the southern borders of the Frankish kingdom. However, the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula would have a cultural bearing on the events of southwest Europe for the next eight centuries and will be a subject of scrutiny for us later on in the volume. The Middle East As we have discovered, the progress of Arab expansion across North Africa was disrupted by civil conflict within the Islamic Caliphate. It would all stem from the differences between the Rashidun Caliph Ali and the would-be Umayyad Caliph Muawiyah during the first fitna. The descendants of Ali are known as the Alids and were favoured by the Shia Muslims, 
Muawiyah represented Sunni Islam and became the first Umayyad caliph, moving the centre of power to his own centre of influence at Damascus in Syria. There was a degree of discontent in Mecca at the centre of Arab power being moved northwards and away from the Meccan heartlands of Islam itself. We can also add the somewhat fractious Kharijites who were responsible for the assassination of Ali and opposed both the Alids and Umayyads, believing them both to be misinterpreting Islam as it was advised in the Quran. It is little surprise to learn that there was a second fitna. The Islamic Caliphate was a victim of its own rapid expansion and a lack of common infrastructure across the vast lands contained within it. We have already learned that Ali's son Hussein was unsuccessful in his attempt to dethrone the Umayyad Caliph Yazid, who was the son of Muawiyah. Hussein had made his way from Mecca who were not content with the Umayyad dynasty controlling the caliphate. Previously, the Islamic caliph had been selected, but the Umayyads had introduced a hereditary succession which had brought Yazid to rule without selection. Mecca and Medina stood together in their opposition of Yazid, who they considered to be ruling the caliphate in a manner not befitting of the Qur'an. They would persecute any members of the Umayyad dynasty still residing in the heartlands, and this was enough for Yazid to send an army to tackle those rebelling against him and his family. The Umayyads would defeat the Medinese at the Battle of Al-Hatta in 683, and then go on to besiege the city of Mecca. While Mecca was attempting to resist the siege, the sudden death of the Caliph Yazid proved to be a blessing for the people of Mecca, as the Umayyads now felt it necessary to withdraw. The Meccans would establish their own separate caliphate, with their own caliph called Abd Allah ibn al-Zubayr, This Zubayrid caliphate would stand against the Umayyads, but they did not receive the support of the Alids who actually opposed them. So now there were three factions competing for supremacy of the caliphate. The Umayyads based in Syria, the Alids based in Iraq, and the Zubayrids based in Hijaz. And that's without mentioning the Harijite fundamentalists. Incidentally, Hijaz is the name of the area of the modern country of Saudi Arabia that contains the cities of Mecca and Medina. The Umayyad Caliphate had very quickly lost its central authority. The Umayyads and the supporters of the Alids continued to battle one another but it would actually be the Zubayrids that would put down the pro-Alids before the Umayyads defeated the Zubayrids in Iraq at the Battle of Maskin in 691, before they would venture southwards to besiege Mecca once more. 
This time, the Umayyads would succeed in defeating the Zubayrids and killing the leader, Ibn al-Zubayr, in the process. Now hostilities would die down as the Umayyads had resumed supremacy and the other factions had been debilitated enough to remove the threat, so the second fitna was now over. Apogee We can debate the largest and most powerful empires in the world up to this point, with the Xiongnu Empire having claim to controlling the most land. The Han Chinese would certainly have more people in their modern and urbanised settlements, much like the Persian empires. The Romans, on the other hand, were in control of many vast waterways and would have certainly have had the wealthiest empire of classical antiquity. In terms of land area, it was the Umayyads and their expansion of North Africa and across into southwest Europe, plus their annexation of the former Sasanian Persian lands that now made their empire the largest that the world had ever seen. The Umayyads would always be controversial heads of the Islamic Caliphate due to their opulent and tolerant attitudes. But some may argue that this is the openness that allowed the caliphate to prosper, with there being great advances in academia and modernisation of the state which gathered knowledge and information from the lands that it occupied, not least of all with its new centre within the lands of Syria, previously belonging to the Byzantines, who were predominantly Christians. So the Umayyads had to embrace the Christians as a valuable part of their population. It does seem that conversion to Islam was encouraged and even rewarded, especially in relation to taxation. The Umayyads were enjoying a period of renewed authority under the Caliph Abd al-Malik, who had overseen the victories over the Zubayrids in the Hijaz before reworking his authority over the traditionally pro-Alid territories of Iraq who had been weakened during their conflicts with the fundamentalists Harijites. A concerted effort was made by Abd al-Malik to establish a Muslim identity on his lands, with the iconic Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock being completed in Jerusalem, and the gold dinar replacing the Byzantine gold solidus as the main coinage of Syrian lands, the heartlands of Umayyad commerce. A new distribution of weights and measures was issued to standardise trade, which had always been a positive move for any trading nation. Arabic was promoted as the language of Islam throughout the Caliphate in order to prevent misinterpretation of the Quran. And this is why we see so many non-Arabian Islamic countries using Arabic as their official language in the modern world. The Caliph Muawiyah had attempted to besiege the Byzantine capital of Constantinople unsuccessfully during his own tenure as the leader of the Caliphate back in the 670s. But now the Umayyads were at the apogee of their expansion and under the Caliph Suleiman ibn Abd al-Malik, who as his name would suggest was the son of Abd al-Malik. A renewed offensive 
was directed towards the Byzantines. The first siege was instigated by the Arab acquisition of the naval power at Alexandria in Egypt, which the Arabs would use against the Byzantines themselves. On the first occasion, the Byzantines would defend themselves by using an incendiary weapon which has been given the name Greek fire. Greek fire would have been shot by a siphon towards the Arabs' acquired ships and it would have been made up from a combination of pitch, possibly with sulphur and quicklime. This is sometimes seen as a revolutionary weapon, but incendiary projectile weapons were not a new thing. We can see evidence of such weapons dating all the way back to the Siege of Lachish, used by the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE. It was the fact that they were a major factor in the outcome that is more interesting to military historians. On the second occasion, the Byzantines had been so weakened and the Umayyads had become so strong that Constantinople genuinely feared conquest and prepared for a total defence of itself with all able men brought to arms and all others expelled from the city. Resources were stockpiled in anticipation of another siege. The city walls were reinforced and upon arrival, the Umayyads sought to build a second line of contravallation walls to keep supporters of Constantinople out. The city was under intense siege again, in a similar fashion to how the Romans under Julius Caesar besieged the Gallic city of Elysia under Vercingetorix. The difference between Elysia and Constantinople is that Constantinople sits on a coast and to prevent support via sea is not as simple as building a wall of contravallation. This time the use of incendiary Greek fire was expected but the defection of Coptic Christians who had travelled alongside the Umayyads was not and it was the betrayal of these Arab allies that left the Muslim invaders out in the cold and isolated with depleting resources. The Byzantines had held out and the Umayyads were forced to retreat. Decline Within the Umayyad Caliphate, conversion to Islam was encouraged and rewarded, but those converts who were not specifically of Arab descent would not be looked after in the same way that Arab Muslims were. Those non-Arab Muslims would come to be referred to as the Mawali and their discontent was becoming more of a problem. Add to this the fact that the Caliphate had always had ideological and ethnic divisions within it and it was probably only a matter of time before civil conflict was going to take place yet again. There had always been concerns over the nature of Umayyad rule, with its leadership being passed down the family line, instead of there being an election made by a consensus of elites, and the fact that the Umayyad leadership style and ways of life were anti-Quranic. The decline of Umayyad dominance was exacerbated by the behaviour of the Caliph Al-Walid ibn Yazid, also known as Al-Walid II. Al-Walid 
would persecute and assassinate political opponents and spend large amounts of money on lavish events, buildings and ceremonies, which was viewed as impious by many. Despite numerous warnings, all dismissed by al-Walid, there was an uprising and in 744, al-Walid II was assassinated by his enemies. This would create disagreement within the caliphate about the succession with there being a number of Umayyad lines now with claimants as well as all of the non-Umayyad factions such as the Harijites believing that they should be in control of the caliphate too. Eventually Marwan ibn Muhammad would take control of the caliphate referred to by historians as Marwan II for ease of reference. Marwan was opposed by many parties looking to take control of the caliphate for themselves and the caliphate was plunged into civil war once more. This was the third fitna. Marwan successfully put down the Kharijite rebellion at Mosul in northern Iraq before turning his attention to another uprising which was gaining more traction. The former Persian lands of Khorasan appeared to be supporting the claim of another branch of prominent Arabs descended from an uncle of the Prophet Muhammad and the Caliph Ali called Abbas ibn Abd al-Muttalib and therefore referred to as the Abbasids. We're going to stop the story there and continue next time with the story of the Abbasids and the interesting story of what eventually happened to the Umayyads. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast. This week's episode was about the Umayyad Caliphate, the caliphate that took over from the Rashidans and the caliphate that predated the Abbasids, of whom we will talk about next week. The Umayyad Caliphate is not known by many to be the largest land area empire of the world up until this date and that's quite an astonishing fact when you consider we really don't talk about them a lot and um, we'd on thoughts naturally go to others like the Romans and the Persians Um, in fact they took over from the Tsiongnu who were the step culture um, nomads who who ruled great swathes of land north of China and uh, we certainly don't talk about them as much either so we really are uh, discovering some some new information and some maybe not so well-known information that maybe if we want to be uh, good at our knowledge of the history of the world, we ought to know about these cultures and uh, who they are, what they were called, who they are and what they represented. So appreciate you listening to this week's episode. Thank you so much. Now, if you enjoy the project, if you appreciate it and you want to support it, then you'll be pleased to know that you can. Just simply go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. You can have a good click around there and and see what you can see. Plenty of information, uh, bibliography for uh, for the resources used 
for information for the podcast. And um, also, if you click on the Patreon link, you can make monthly contributions to the podcast. And I often like to give gifts out to those people who do make contributions, so it is much appreciated. And when you do make monthly contributions to the podcast, you automatically gain a place in the history of the world podcast, Illuminati. And this week, I have the pleasure of welcoming David Hannon, Daniel and Kirk Brockman, all new members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Welcome to each of you. The Ancient World Cup Yes, of course. Each week now, we're giving you uh, the updates for the Ancient World Cup. This is a competition that the History of the World podcast is running, uh, where you guys get to vote for who your favourite ancient peoples or culture was and uh, how we do this is that we've got 64 different teams and uh, they've all been entered randomly into a draw and drawn out into 16 groups of four now each week we're going to concentrate on one of those groups and last week it was group a now there are four teams in this group they are the Hephthalites, who were the uh, otherwise known as the white huns who troubled the Persians and the Gupta Indians um, sometime uh, d- during the, the middle of the first uh, millennium. Uh, we had the Mochi who were from the northern lands of Peru from around maybe this, a similar sort of time. We had the Guptas themselves, maybe the the most influential, the most important uh, ancient Indian culture or empire. And then uh, we had the Thebans, um, who were the the most powerful Greek city-state or polis who uh, who emerged from the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War. Um, so, without further ado, let's tell you the results. Now, let me tell you, the, the top two teams will advance through to the knockout stages, which will take place later on in the year 2022. So um, we uh, we find out this week which two teams progress and which two teams are knocked out. And I can announce that in fourth place in Group A were, with 17% of the votes, were the Thebans. So we say goodbye to the Thebans. In third place, with 20% of the vote, were the Gupta Empire. Now, I... I have I felt that maybe the Guptas would get through, but they're not. They're out. Unfortunately, they've been knocked out. They finished in third place. So we now know who the two teams who have progressed are, but in which order have they gone through in? With 26% of the vote were the Mochi culture of, uh, of South America. And uh, the... The winners of the group, uh, we won it with quite a, by quite a distance in the end, with 37% of the votes were the Hephthalites. So uh, maybe maybe the uh, the love of the Huns maybe came through for the Hephthalites there. But congratulations to the Hephthalites and the Mochi who go through to the knockout stages. Commiserations to the Guptas and the Thebans who have been knocked out. So. Um, thank you very much to all those who voted. There were 35 votes in the end, which I was which I was quite happy about, to be quite honest with you. Um, the voting took place across uh, different forums, uh, Twitter, 
Facebook and uh, the History of the World podcast discussion forum. So they were all counted up, all put together, and that was the results. This week now we move on to Group B. So who are the teams in Group B? Well, this week we're going to be looking at the Epirates, who are most famous for their uh, King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was bold enough to um, to challenge the Carthaginians and the Romans. Um, we uh, also see uh, the entry into the competition of the Macedonians, um, Alexander the Great's great imperial movement, the Macedonians. We also have the Carthaginians, those Carthaginians who were dominant of the Western Mediterranean until they ran into the Romans and uh, the, the big talisman there is Hannibal who crossed the Alps with those 37 elephants. And uh, and finally, uh, the giants in this team are the ancient Egyptians who um, surely they've got to be the favourites for that group, the ancient Egyptians. But uh, somewhat of a strong group this week um, and so we'll be interested to see how you vote. Uh, of course, the results will be on next week's episode but until then make sure you go to the forums to the social media forums and cast your vote you can find a bit more information about the teams and of course if you want to keep up with the entire competition then go to the history of the world podcast.com website and click on the ancient world cup link listener messages and reviews well, firstly, I'm going to give a shout out to Jim Mason from Den Haag, who has written, Hi, Chris, fan of history podcast here. I thought you might like this from the Observer Guardian. Um, it's a, an article uh, relating to the, um, to the migration of Homo sapiens into Europe. Um, and uh, it's quite an interesting article and uh, tackles that age-old question of, uh, of when these migrations did happen and, and differing viewpoints from the scientific community. So I have politely asked him to share this on social media, so hopefully he'll do that and we can all get some pleasure out of reading that article. So thank you very much, Jim, and don't forget to share that with the community. Shane Smith wrote in, a good uh, close friend of the podcast, Shane Smith, he was, he was the one who commissioned the episode on Snorri Sturluson, which was published uh, three or four weeks ago now. Uh, he wrote in uh, saying that um, he was listening to the Mississippian episode. Uh, how, uh, how do they determine that Monk's mound was man-made and not man-modified? As in, was there a hill there and, and they worked it to look like it does or or did? Um, well, it's an interesting question, Shane, and, and I don't really know the answer. I, I didn't really study uh, Monk's Mound in terms of um, its uh, geology, if you like. Um, I know that the lands around um, Cahokia are quite flat, so we're talking about Monk's Mound at Cahokia here in the Mississippi River Valley. Um, that was uh, quite an important site to the Mississippian culture, a bit of a um, a central site. Um, And um, the the fact that Monk's Mound is is a considerable size, 
um, you know, it could suggest that there might have been some geological or land shape there that, that was modified. So quite right, but there are a, a number of man-made mounds in that area and, and we we call this site collectively Cahokia. Um, so maybe someone who's listening to this now might might know the answer to that, Shane. So we'll reach out to the community and hope that somebody has, has maybe gone to Cahokia and uh, maybe learnt a bit more about it than, than I have. Um, Josh Lucky Day Henderson has written in saying, if this is the legit play page for the podcast, he's written in on the Facebook page. Uh, well done, sir. Love, love, love ancient history, uh, ancient European history and culture. Thank you for spending your precious time sharing your knowledge. Um, very kind of you to write in, Josh. I'm glad that you love your history so much. You're, uh, you're in good company here with like-minded people. So, uh, welcome along. Uh, Andy Wankel has written in and put, um, Chris, glad that Volume 4 is finally up and running. I didn't know until today that Islam and uh, Islam had connections to Nestorian Christianity. Well done. Keep them coming and thanks for all that you do, sir. I've got to be honest, that was somewhat speculative on my front. I know that Nestorian Christianity was um, well uh, travelled throughout the Asiatic lands of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, of uh, lands of Roman influence, if you like, and so it's uh, it's likely that Nestorians were in the in the Hejaz in that area of the world, and therefore it might have been that Muhammad was um, was uh, privy to that kind of uh, religious worship, and um, you know who's to say that that wasn't um, a part of an inspiration? I know many fundamental Muslims would um, probably not be too happy with that as a suggestion but um from a, a a very neutral overview kind of point of view um it deserves to be mentioned as it is a is a, a possibility so um that's um an interesting point there's no real uh, no, no real evidence of that being the case so uh, it's pure speculation but thank you for writing in andy very interesting subject um Humphrey uh, Bolai uh, has written in and put, Hello Chris, I regularly enjoy listening to your podcast. Sometimes it even helps me sleep faster. Oh no, not another one, not another one. I hope I can ask a question via this medium. Are humans still evolving? If so, how and why? Um, well Humphrey, yes, we very much definitely are still evolving. Uh, every life form um, evolves according to the circumstances around it. Only the fittest survive. And uh, therefore, um, if half of the human race have uh, better qualities to survive in the current climate of the world, then they are more likely to uh, survive and their genetic makeup is going to be the blueprint for future generations. That's uh, probably the, the most articulate and succinct way that I can put it. But interesting uh, question. Thank you so much for taking the time to write in and ask it, Humphrey. If anyone wants to write into the podcast, don't hesitate. I'm always interested in what you what you thought of the more recent episodes. Please don't hesitate to write in. We will read out your messages. Kind reviews now from the World of the History of the World podcast. Uh, Eddie1E, or Ed, Ed1E at NY, 
uh, from the United States of America. It's an excellent podcast. I've just finished listening to volume two and can't wait to get into uh, until I start volume three. was looking to get into listening to a podcast worth my time and this is as good as it gets. Chris does an excellent job. Keep it up. Um, and thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Eddie M. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to um, to write that review. It really is uh, very gratefully received. Uh, Tiberius JTK67 uh, has put a labour of love. I started this podcast a couple of months ago for my commutes. Before this, I wasn't much of a listener to podcasts. In uh, only the first couple of episodes, Chris demonstrated what I was missing. His delivery, humour and love of the subject matter are enough to grab you, shake you and enthrall you with stories of yesteryear. I I like that word, yesteryear. I don't know why I've got an attraction to that word. Anyways, I'm I'm reading the review. Let me me stop uh, digressing. If you're looking, look no further. If you love history, you've found a home. If you are uninterested in history, prepare to change your mind. Regardless of who you are, Chris will blow your mind. While I'm currently in the middle of Volume 3, I'm astounded by learning that what I've learned, uh, and I'm excited to hear more about early England. This was a particular focus of learning for me when I was younger, and it's like taking a trip down memory lane and finding my memory had a lot of holes. No matter what you do or who you are, learning new things is a gift. And it is good uh, from, uh, good form to thank those who give you a gift. So thank you, Chris. It is very much appreciated and very much what I need. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's a, a very kind and, and well-constructed and, uh, and highly complimentary um, uh, review. Um very humbling to read such stuff so thank you very much indeed and thank you to everyone who's taken the time to write a message and also to write a review okay well it's time to wrap up again for another week thank you very much once again for listening don't forget to check out the history of the world podcast.com website for some more chat debate some discussion uh, you can get involved the history of the world podcast doesn't have to end at the end of this episode you can carry on the discussion online and uh, obviously uh, we always welcome you to give us your support we've also opened a merchandise shop now so you can actually gift um, your uh, friends and relatives uh, who may be fans of the podcast uh, a gift for Christmas or for their birthday just go and click the merchandise link and uh, see if there's anything there that you would uh, you would like to own or would like to buy for somebody else. So um, I hope you uh, I hope you do go along to there. Next week um, we carry on the story of the Islamic Caliphate and find out who the Abbasids um, are. Found find out how they came to power and also find out um, why. They continue to be in power even after they lost their political uh, sway and influence over the the area of the Middle East. So um, an interesting episode, the golden age of of Islam uh, in the Middle East, and that will be coming next week. Until then, don't forget to be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. 
email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.